Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Gary Weber. I'm the pastor here at Southside Baptist Church, and uh, it's great to be with you guys as we're getting into the fall. Hope everybody had a good Labor Day weekend last weekend. And uh, want to just ask, any, do we have anybody here who uh, loves Greek mythology? It kind of made a resurgence with some uh, children's books and movies recently. Okay, so a few, few folks who like Greek mythology. Is anybody familiar with, uh, with a Greek mythological character named Narcissus? Anybody? Yeah, I didn't ask if you knew any. I just asked if you're familiar with the character. So... If you're not familiar with, uh, with this, this story, this Greek myth, uh, he was a young man who was known for his incredible good looks. He was a good-looking guy, and uh, nobody thought he was better looking than he did. And it, apparently, though, he was really, really actually good-looking because he was, he was loved by a lot of women. And the, the, the story goes that Narcissus would walk by and these women would just be aghast at his beauty. And they would be so uh, overcome with how good looking he was that many of them who knew that he, could, he would never be theirs, they would just end their life because they thought, I can never live without Narcissus. And, and here's the thing about Narcissus. He was so uh, proud of his own beauty, but he often had zero compassion for other people. So even people who adored him and loved him, he did not return that in any way. He actually disdained them until one day the story goes that Narcissus was walking by a pool and um, he looked down in the water and saw a reflection of himself. Now, I don't know if you know this, but mirrors are actually sort of a new thing in the course of human history. If you think about the length of human history, the modern mirror really hasn't been with us that long. So Narcissus had never really seen his own reflection, but he was walking by this particular pond this day and looked down and the water was just perfectly still and perfectly reflected. And he looked in that mirror and he's like, that is one good looking guy. And he fell in love with his own image. He was so captured by it But like so many of the other people who had fallen in love with Narcissus, the person in the mirror would not reciprocate the love for him. And so the story goes that Narcissus stayed there looking in that mirror until finally he just died. Because he died from unrequited love of himself. Now, obviously, this is a myth as all Greek myths are, are, are fiction and, and made up, but there, there are truths in these stories that we can hold on to and we can even see them, right? Right? We can see them. We see them in culture. We see them in society. They've got some truths. And so how many of you know what modern psychological condition comes from this story? What's the name of it? Narcissism. Exactly right. Narcissism is an inflated view of self coupled. Now, this is what sometimes we forget. It's not just an inflated view of yourself. It's also coupled with relative indifference to other people. So it's not just that you really like your own image or you really like yourself, but you really don't care much about anybody else at all either. Now, there is a test that psychologists give, they've, been, they've given it out for years, it's called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, or NPI for short. 
And they have given this test out to students, psychology students, every year for, for many, many years. And it measures the level of, uh, of narcissism and how empathetic people are to other, other folks. Now, here's what's been interesting. Psychologists today say that approximately 70% of students who take this test today score higher on the narcissism and lower on empathy than did the average student 30 years ago. 70% of students today are more narcissistic than students were, psychology students were 30, 30 years ago. Well, this has inspired a lot of research and study. Why are we as a culture and a society becoming more narcissistic? Now, now, there's some interesting observations have come out of this. This is all from uh, psychology today. One of the theories goes like this, that there's been an overemphasis on self-esteem beginning in the 1980s. That if you think about what was going on in schools, those of you who were in school in the 1980s, there, there began to be a lot of emphasis placed on building self-esteem of students. And is that a bad thing? No, not necessarily. But has the pendulum shifted so much that we're focused on self-esteem that people are becoming more and more narcissistic? It would seem that that's maybe the, maybe the case. Another thing that they've discovered is that there's been an in, a dramatic increase in performance expectations on our children. So it's not just that a kid has to participate in sports. They have to be the best at sports. They just can't be the best in their local little league. They've got to be the best on a travel team. And it's not just about sports. It's also about academics. You know, we, we've got to get our kids into the best college, and that's probably going to be determined by the time they finish fifth grade. And so we begin to put pressure, more and more pressure on kids. And people think this is part of what's driving the rise in, in, in narcissism. It also has to do with where, where you go to college and your arts area, if you're, if you're an artist. All these things, we, we've really expected our kids uh, to be per- perfect in all things, and that has made them more self-aware than ever. Uh, But there's also a third thing that came up that was kind of interesting, and that was that parents are not allowing children enough freedom to play without adult direction and involvement. That kids just can't go play. They can't just pick up a baseball and a a baseball bat and go and play a pickup game. Somebody's got to be there managing it and following the rules. And so kids are, are not able to just experience free play. So these are just some possible reasons that people have come up with why as a culture, why as a society, society, we seem to be more narcissistic than ever. But there are some other realities that you and I both recognize and know, and that is social media and the rise of social media and, and, its, and its influence in our culture and, and in our lives. So just some information for you. Uh, this is probably best captured in a word that was recently added to the dictionary, uh, selfie, a selfie. Uh, you know what that is, right? It's when you take your phone or your camera or whatever, and you flip the camera around, you know, the camera is faces out, but you can Push a button and it flips around and you can take a picture of yourself. Selfie, okay? So just some information about selfies over the last few years. 74% of all images shared on Snapchat are selfies. 74%. 1,000 selfies are posted on Instagram every 10 seconds. Every 10 seconds. 1,000. There are 93 million in America, 93 million selfies each day, which would represent, hold on to this, those of some of you old school folks, remember film? Remember when you had to pay to have a picture? You know, like you had to buy the film and then go have it developed, remember that? Right, some of you will ask somebody later, uh, ask somebody older later. So listen to 93 million selfies a day, which would represent 2,583,333 rolls of film a day, a day. 
Now, now here's, what's, here's what's even more interesting when you think about the rise of this and just how this focus on ourselves that we have. So in 2015, how many of you remember in the news, one of the dominant uh, stories in the news was about shark attacks? There seemed to be this huge increase of shark attacks off the East Coast and on the West Coast. And, of course, you know, statistics say there's the same number of shark attacks every year. Just the news media decides to focus on it on certain years. Well, 2015 was one of those years, shark attacks, shark attacks. But do you know that in the year 2015, more people died taking selfies than were killed by sharks? (laughs) Now, we have a problem. We, we have a problem as our culture becomes more and more and more narcissistic, more and more focused on itself. But listen, it's not a new problem. Listen to what the great Baptist preacher, Jonathan Edwards, said in 1737. Listen to this quote from 1737. The first and worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which Satan has hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring or at least the main support of all other errors. Until this disease is cured, medicines are, are, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. 1737, pride. But it wasn't just in 1737. In 1940, C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride. Whether it's Jonathan Edwards in the, in the 18th century, whether it's C.S. Lewis in the early part of the 20th century, or whether it's the number of selfies on Instagram and Snapchat today, this has been the common error. And C.S. Lewis is right. It's always been the core problem. Go all the way back. Don't turn there now. But if you go all the way back and read Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man began as pride. It began as pride. Here's what happened. So Adam and Eve are in the garden. There's one rule. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. You can eat anything else. You can do anything else you want. There's no limitations. God is, God is present with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Everything is perfect. They, they, they're walking by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent says to Eve, Eve, did God really tell you not to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he tell you not to touch it? He's like, yeah, hey, we're not, supposed to, we're not supposed to do that. And the serpent says, you know what? God just knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll be like him. You'll be like him. And so Eve, seeing that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, took the fruit and ate the fruit. What was it? That was pride. What was it? Motivating Eve, motivating Adam to eat that fruit. It was pride. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to usurp the one thing that God said, that is not for you. It was pride that drove them to that. Same thing in the Tower of Babel. They wanted to reach to the heavens. They wanted to get, they wanted to, get to God on their own power. And so they built the tower in uh, Genesis Chapter 11, you can read that story. Pride has been the core source of the fall of man and every other sin finds its origin in 
pride. Uh, the Bible talks about several kings whose downfall was pride. In uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we talk, learn about King Uzziah. As long as he sought the Lord, the Bible says, God made him prosper. So as a result of seeking the Lord and prospering, he acquired wealth, he became politically and militarily powerful. And then it says this in verse 15. His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his, what's that last word? Destruction. This is not the only king. Uh, Daniel tells us about another king, King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 5. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down to his king, from his kingly throne and his glory was taken away from him. Now these are kings who saw their power and their authority as rivaling or being compared to God and God struck them both down. But this is probably why the Bible says in Proverbs so often it warns us against pride. Look what it says in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. That's pretty strong language coming from God. I hate it. It's not like I don't like it. It's not like it's a sin. He says, I hate it. Look what he says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. These are strong words about something that we so often just ignore in our culture and society, and it's a rampant problem, and it's the source of every other problem we face. It's pride. And let me ask you, when's the last time you heard a sermon about pride? When's the last time you heard a sermon about humility? And yet it's the core of everything we do. So for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about humility and pride, a series that we're calling Selfless. And we want you to engage with us on Sunday mornings, being here, being inspired. If you miss a Sunday, join us online. We want your questions in. So on Wednesday nights at 6.30, we can try to address some of your questions. You can turn those in uh, on your communication card or through, through an email address we've provided. And then in small groups, if your small group's participating, we'll also be talking about this subject in our small groups as well. But here's, here's what's so difficult about pride. Pride is something that we can immediately spot in somebody else but almost never see in ourselves. As a matter of fact, here's a little test. If you've already had the thought in your mind, so-and-so really needs to hear this service, this series. You may be the one who needs to hear this series, right? Or if you've already thought, if you've already thought to yourself, oh, four weeks, I think I'm going to find something to do for the next couple Sundays. It may be something else that, that you need to deal with. We never see this in the mirror. We always recognize it in somebody else. It stands out when we see it in somebody else. Humility is the same way. Humility is exactly the same way. In fact, there's a story about, um, this is going to be a bad preacher joke. I'm just going to give you up front. I don't do this very often. So if I blow it, if I blow the punchline, you know, this is why I don't tell jokes. So, so here, for those of you who wish I had a preacher that told jokes, here you go. This is one maybe in 10 years I've told. So there's a preacher, all right, and he's a, a humble, godly preacher. And his church recognizes, man, we've got the most humble, godly preacher of any pastor in the entire world. And so they have this big celebration, and they give him this award, and they make a pin that just says, you know, the most humble pastor. And they make this, they give it to him. It's a big deal. The next Sunday, he comes, and he wears the pin, and they fire him for being proud. See, pride, here's the tricky thing about pride. The pride you don't see in the mirror, you see it in other people. Humility is also something that we very rarely recognize in ourselves. And the minute we do, we've lost it. 
right? I mean, the minute you say, well, I'm humble, uh, guess what? You're not. I mean, it, it's, so, it's so hard to get a hold of. But here's what I also know. Not only do you see pride in other people, you recognize and are inspired by the humility of other people. You see it. And when you see it, it's stunning to you. Here's why it's so stunning to you. Because humility is one of the defining characteristics of Jesus Christ. We never look more like Jesus than when we are humble. We never look more like Jesus than than when we're humble. So we're going to spend the next few weeks uh, studying this, looking at this. What does the Bible have to say about it? Here's what I hope happens as a result of this series. First of all, my goal is for it. First of all, that we are more aware of the subtle presence of pride in our lives and its destructive nature. Pride is something that is so easy to overlook, and yet so many times it is the core of so many of our other spiritual problems. Second goal for us is to have happier, healthier relationships with the people around you. Because even though you don't see the pride in you, I guarantee you they see the pride in you. And it's probably something that's preventing your relationship from being as good as it could otherwise be. And the third and most important reason is that we will grow to be more like Jesus who is the absolute picture of humility. Now, the last 13, 14 weeks, we have looked at the life of Paul. And Paul really is a great picture of somebody who is transformed into the image of Christ. And as we see Paul become more like Jesus through the course of his life, one of the things that we we saw, and it was subtle, it was easy to miss, is that Paul was becoming increasingly more humble. Let, just take a look at this with me. I'll put a timeline up. In the year 56 AD, this is what Paul said. He said, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? I mean, Paul's just basically saying, hey, I'm an apostle too. I mean, I've got rights here. I did this work in you. This is something that I've been doing. He's recognizing this is my role. Don't you see that? Don't you understand? He's defending himself. Later that same year, here's what he said. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Notice what happened? He took himself down a notch. Look what he says in the year 60 or 61 AD. Just just a few, four or five years later. 60 or 61 AD. The grace was given me the least of all the saints. So he went from being an apostle, which is a select few, to being a saint, which is all believers. But he's not even just saying I'm a saint. He's the least of all of them, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. And finally, look what he said in 62, somewhere between 62 and 64. Here's what he said. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. I'm an apostle. You should pay attention to me. You should listen to me. I'm an apostle. I'm just the least of all the apostles. I'm really not even worthy to be called an apostle. I'm not worthy. I'm I'm really just barely a saint. I'm not even sure why I'm considered to be a saint anymore. I mean, yeah, it's really, I, I'm not that good, but by God's grace, I'm a saint. I'm the worst of all sinners. I'm the worst of them. You see what happens? There's an increasing level of humility as he becomes more and more like Jesus. So what I want to do today as we kick this series off is I want to talk about what does humility look like? What is it? Because it's so hard to get our hands around. It's so hard to understand. And there are so many misunderstandings and misconceptions about humility. So to do this, I want to look at something that Paul wrote that I think gives us a pretty good description of what humility is and what it isn't. So if you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 12. 
Romans chapter 12, and we're going to walk through this and try to take out of this text some characteristics of humility. Now, if you're a note taker inside your worship guide today, there's a place for you to write this down uh, so that you can hold on to it and look it over later. So here's what he says, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the first thing we learn about humility is that it is total surrender to Christ. Total surrender to Christ. You're to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifices were always dead. You killed a sacrifice to put it on the, on the altar. It could not get down. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Your whole life, everything about you is to be a living sacrifice, completely submitted To God. That's your spiritual act of worship. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him, what are those two words? Deny himself, deny herself, take up his cross daily and follow after me. The first step to following Jesus isn't taking up the cross. Now that's important. The first step is denying yourself. If you want to be my follower, he says, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to become a living sacrifice. Now, at the beginning of 2018, we set a goal to look more like Jesus at the end of the year than we did at the beginning of the year, to really focus on becoming more like Christ. And I want to just share with you, now that we're you know, nine months into this, I want to share with you what is the biggest, your biggest obstacle to, to seeing that. The biggest obstacle to your spiritual growth is you. It's you. Now, some of you might be thinking, no, 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 no. My biggest spiritual obstacle, my biggest obstacle to spiritual growth is, is if, if only you'd preach better sermons. If only my small group leaders were, were better. If, if only, you know, if only my, my, my kids were more cooperative. If only my spouse would, you know, would get his or her act together. That, that's my biggest obstacle. No, it's not. It's just not. Your biggest obstacle to spiritual growth is looking at you in the mirror every day. This is why Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. That's why Paul said you have to be a living sacrifice. Look at verse 2, what he says. Second characteristic. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. The second thing we recognize about humility is that it's countercultural. That's not really hard to see today, is it? Because our world is increasingly narcissistic, it's easier to understand that, that denying self stands out in the world today in significant ways. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 20. He said this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, it's it's completely countercultural. People do not make movies about somebody who just lived their life in such a narcissistic way and always about them. And I mean, they may make a movie to look at that as as a tragedy in our culture today, but it's not something that we hold up. And yet more and more our culture, our society, pushes us towards greater levels of pride and self-centeredness and arrogance and narcissism. And yet what we all recognize is that when someone is selfless, it takes our breath away. It's beautiful. It's wonderful because it's so counter 
cultural. And it always has been. Look at Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now this, to me, is the core of what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. And and the the truth that I take out of this is actually a quote from C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking less less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Now this verse, um, Romans 12, 3, after my mother passed away, um, I, I, one of the things I, I got from, from her was her, one of her Bibles. She had several Bibles, and, and I got one of her Bibles. Because when you're the preacher in the family, everybody thinks you just should get all the Bibles, even though I've got a lot of Bibles already. It's okay. I got the Bible. I, it was good. It was good. I, I, I love having it. But I was looking through her Bibles just to say what notes she had in there. So I'm flipping through. I get to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. And she's got written by Romans 12, 3, Gary and Leonard. <laughs> That's my brother. Now we have a sister. Her name was not written. Her name was not written by Romans 12:3. But I remember reading that and thinking, from the grave, my mother is trying to say, Don't you get puffed up. Don't you get too big for your britches. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. And here's the trick. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but this is so important because some of you out there, listen, listen. You are being deceived into thinking that you are not prideful because you have low self-esteem. Now, stay with me for a second. Stay with me. Because pride and arrogance isn't just narcissism looking in the mirror thinking how good he looks. It's also the opposite of someone looking in the mirror thinking, man, I look terrible. Why can't I do that? Why, am I, why, why aren't I good at that? Why is everybody better than me at that? Why am I so fat? Why am I too thin? Why am I not better looking? Why am I not younger? Why am I not older? Why, me, 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 you see it? Me, 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 me. And here's the deception, and this is the, the, the devil delights in this, because here's the, he doesn't need you to be full of arrogance to win. He just needs you to keep your face in the mirror looking at yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. And some of you think, well, I'll just be more humble, and I'll beat myself up more. Why can't I be more humble? What's wrong with me? And you're already losing the battle. Because where's your focus? Your focus is on you. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. Think of yourself with sober judgment. That's the the key there. We'll come back to that more throughout the series. Verse 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of it. Here's another characteristic of humility. It recognizes and accepts help from others. Now, this, one is, this one's a big deal, too. Because somewhere along the line, we've been convinced that we are more like Jesus if we don't need anybody else's help. It's another lie straight from the pit of hell. That is pride that keeps you from asking for or accepting help. A failure to allow people to help you is actually an indication of pride in your heart and in your life. And and there's a story that backs this up. In John chapter 13, Jesus 
begins to wash the disciples' feet, and he comes to Peter, and Peter says, oh, no, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Peter, uh, Jesus looks right at Peter and says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part in the kingdom of, of heaven with me. That's a pretty strong indictment. Because, because here's the thing, you can't save yourself no matter how good you are. You can't. I don't care how smart you are, I don't care how good you are, you can't save yourself. So if you can't accept help, your soul is in trouble. And the core of that refusal to accept or ask for help is pride. Let's go and look at the next verse, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in portion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So here's another reality about humility. It does not fail to recognize God-given gifts, but embraces them as stewardship given by God for the good of others. here's Here's what humility is not, okay? A member of the the band this morning one of the singers one of the instrumentalists betty playing the organ does a beautiful job you come up to them you say man that was that just that was so thank you so much that was so beautiful you did such a great oh man it wasn't really that good i'm really i, I was flat I, no i was out of tune i missed that measure you know what they're doing they're taking something that you didn't mean to compliment them you were talking about you were praising god about for the gifts god gave them and they're making it who about who they're making it about themselves, right? Now, now I can use that illustration because our team, our team is, is so humble we should give them pins and they'll wear them next week and then we'll fire them all. <laughs> but but do you see, do you see how, how slippery that is, how hard it is to get your hands around that? See, humility isn't saying, no, 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 I'm really not any good at that. No, humility is, is understanding God has given me this gift not for my own benefit, not to inflate myself, but he's given me this gift for the benefit of the church. So the best way I can praise God with the gifts he's given me is taking those gifts and using them for his glory and for the good of his people. Amen. They are stewardship given to us by God. This is why today, Cindy's going to talk to you more about this, but inside your worship guide this morning is a ministry covenant card. We want to hear from you. And this isn't, we're not asking you to be prideful, but how has God gifted you And how can you use that gift to benefit his church? How do you see the gifts in other people that you want to recognize and say, hey, we need to set these people aside to help lead our church? Cindy's going to give you more information about that in just a minute. Look with me at verse 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church where everybody just kept trying to outdo each other in showing honor? I want to be a part of that church. That's where I want to go to church every Sunday. We just try to outdo each other with honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, there's a lot in that, but let me just summarize it by this characteristic of humility. Humility is not weak, passive, or silent in distinguishing good from evil. See, humility doesn't let evil thrive. Humility recognizes what is good. It recognizes what is evil. It doesn't assert truth in order to build up its own ego or to control or dominate a conversation, but in order to serve Christ and serve other people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with what? 
with the truth. See, to be humble doesn't mean that you have to be silent in the face of evil or roll over. It means you recognize and you point out this is good and right and we should be these kind of people. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So humility is not weakness. It's not passivity. It's not being silent, but it is distinguishing good from evil. Verse 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Humility is compassionate and deferential. It is compassionate, meaning that it recognizes the condition that other people are in. When they're sorrowful, it recognizes that person's having a hard time. When they're rejoicing, it recognizes that person has something to celebrate and rejoice over. And it's deferential, meaning that it puts other people above itself. It's deferential. Now, we talked earlier about, uh, about Narcissus in the mirror. And here, here is, here's what I think is the core of maybe everything that, that we need to talk about for the next few weeks about about humility and the difference between humility and, and, and pride. So pride is going through life with a handheld mirror. If you want a more modern illustration, pride is going through life with a camera facing yourself, selfie mode. And everywhere you go, there you are looking at yourself. Every conversation you have, you're thinking to yourself, this person's talking, but what I'm actually doing is I'm thinking, how am I going to respond to that? What's she thinking of me right now? I wonder if I said that wrong. I wonder what they, did they hear what I just said? How am I going to, and everything you do is always a reflection of yourself. Every exchange. Now, you don't see that in yourself, but I guarantee you, you know people that when they're talking to you, you can see it. They're doing it. You recognize. They're already formulating their answer. They're not really looking at me. They're not really listening to me. They're just using this conversation as a reflection back on themselves. The job, about them. Going to church, it's about me. Everything is about me. Everything is a reflection of me. I am constantly looking at the man in the mirror. According to the great popular theologian, Michael Jackson, right? Now listen, I'm a child of the 80s. I love that song. You know, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no, help me with it. No what? No. Could have been. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make that change. Okay. Now, come on now. I love me some Michael Jackson. But that's just wrong. You are not going to make the world a better place by looking at yourself in the mirror. You might try to make a better image of yourself, but as a Christian, you are not called to make a better image of yourself. You are called to look at the image of Jesus and say, how can I look more like that? You don't go through life with a handheld mirror. You go through life with this. Every conversation is, how can I hear her better? How can I understand him more? What's going on inside his heart right now? Why would he do that? Why would she say that? What's the hurt or pain behind that caustic thing she just said to me? 
You take the mirror and you don't look at the scripture to say, God, what do you have to say to me today? No, 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 no. What, God, what do you have to say today? And then how do I align my life with that? Do you see the difference in that? I mean, that'll change your life. Because you can go to the Bible and make the Bible a handheld mirror, or you can go to the Bible with a magnifying glass and say, where can I find Jesus? And how do I look more like him? See, what's it going to be? Are you going to walk around looking at life in every relationship you have, every circumstance, with a handheld mirror or with a magnifying glass? Save the emails. I like Michael Jackson. I don't, really, I'm good with him. I'm good with him. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, if possible, so far as it depends on you, as it depends on you, as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Humility is unoffendable. And listen, we live in a culture that is looking for every victim it can find, and it wants you to identify every way you have been victimized. And it is a trap because it makes it all about you all the time. And I just want to tell you, if you are humble, you are unoffendable. You, it's like you've got Teflon on and nothing sticks. I'm rubber and you're glue. Only you can't call them glue because that's not nice. <laughs> See, humility, listen to this. Humility does not feel a right. Come on, come on now. Humility does not feel like it has a right to be treated better than Jesus was treated. Have you ever thought about that? Do you have a right to expect to be treated better than he was treated? Well, listen to what Jesus said. Let's, go to, let's ask Jesus, what does he say? John 15, 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his step, steps. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Humility is unoffendable. It does not expect to be treated better than Jesus was treated. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that it ignores evil or is silent in the face of evil. It recognizes bad for, for what it is. But it also understands that if I'm going to follow in Jesus' steps, if I'm going to, I start by denying myself. And yes, that person has offended me. Yes, they've hurt me. But I'm going to look at them with a magnifying glass and ask this question. What's going on in their heart that they would feel they have the right to do that? What's the pain that is causing them to be so hurtful to me? And see, it changes the whole perspective. It's not about you. It's about what Christ is doing in you. So here's what I want us to do. I, I recognize this is a lot of information. You've got the list there. I, you probably have some questions. I hope you'll join us on Wednesday night at 630 so we can continue this conversation, not as a monologue, but, but as a dialogue. Uh, also in your small groups uh, this week, you'll notice there are blank lines before each of those characteristics. I want to encourage you to rank these eight characteristics of humility in order for you of what is easiest to what is hardest. And in your small groups this week, have a conversation uh, about that with your groups. 
And, and here's the thing. What will you do this week to practice the characteristic of humility? What will you do this week to practice whatever characteristic of humility you find the most difficult? And ask yourself as you go through the week, which one of these, which one of these am I looking through? Am I looking into a mirror or am I looking through a magnifying glass? I want you to take a challenge with me for the next month, the selfless challenge. I want you to think of yourself less. Whether you think of yourself pridefully and arrogantly or whether you think of yourself because of all the flaws and and criticisms you level at yourself, I just want you to think about yourself less this month. Try to focus on what God is calling you to be, the image of Jesus. And and, and also take, take take a fast, take a break from judging and complaining. Just, just this week, this month, focus on how many times are you judging in your mind or verbally or complaining about things. Because there's a core, there's a root of pride that comes behind that as well. And here's the other thing I want you to do. I want you to ask for and receive help when you need it. Ask for and receive help when you need it. Listen, if you want to be more like Jesus, there is no better way to be like him than to set yourself aside, deny yourself and take up your cross, keep your eyes on him, and that's what it means to live a humble life. I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads and pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. Lord, thank you for the the pictures of uh, people in the Bible, both those who were prideful and those who were humble, and then people like Paul who transitioned from one to the other, And certainly and most importantly for the picture we see of Jesus, the perfect image of what it means to be humble. Lord, we want to be like him. Help us to take our eyes off of the mirror and to place them onto Jesus. Father, help us to understand as we go through this week all the ways that pride is influencing what we say, what we do, how we interact. And to commit ourselves, Lord, Uh, to, to being more humble, to denying ourselves and to taking up our cross and following him. Lord, I pray now that you'll just take this work, uh, this word out from this place and embed it deeply in our hearts. Not just that we could know more about pride and humility, but Father, that we might, uh, that we might recognize it and live it out every day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.